We read the Holy Scriptures together in Matthew 17. Matthew 17, the first 23 verses. The text for the sermon is the first nine verses, so pay special attention to those. Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. 
we read God's word that far. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, at this time, late in the life and ministry of Jesus on this earth, he began to focus more intently on his suffering and death in Jerusalem. In the chapter prior to the one we read, when Jesus and his disciples were in Caesarea Philippi, a city to the north of Galilee, near the foot of Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in Palestine. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples that he would have to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the scribes, and the chief priests, and that he would be killed, but that he would be raised again the third day. At that time, when Jesus began to show them these things, Satan tempted Jesus. He tempted Jesus not to take that hard path that involved so much suffering, but rather to take the easy path and to become a king of the Jews on earth in a way that would be much more enjoyable and pleasing. Satan moved one of Jesus' closest disciples and companions, Peter, to tempt him at that time. We all remember when Peter said to Jesus, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But when Satan tempted Jesus through Peter, Jesus rebuffed that temptation. He said to Satan, who was working through Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be. Of men. Jesus then took the opportunity to teach his disciples that just as he would have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, anybody who would follow after him as a disciple must also deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. That brings us to our text, chapter 17, verse 1, where We read, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. Now, if we turn to the parallel passage in Luke 9, Luke says, And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. So Matthew and Mark say after six days. Luke says after eight days. What is the explanation? Well, it's this. Luke was speaking not only of the six days, but also of the day prior to that when he said those sayings, and the day after that, the day of the transfiguration itself. So whereas Matthew and Mark focus on the six days in between, Luke looks at the whole eight days. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all point out that Jesus went up into a mountain, Matthew says here in our text, it was a high mountain. 
We don't know for sure which mountain this was. Some think it was Mount Tabor, but it seems more likely that it was Mount Hermon. After all, they had just been in the vicinity of Mount Hermon at Caesarea Philippi, and it's called a high mountain. Mount Hermon was the highest mountain, is the highest mountain in that area of the world. So probably that is the mountain they climbed. He took with him Peter, James, and John. James and John being brothers, the sons of Zebedee. These were his three closest disciples. And more and more he took them to be with him in these last days and year of his ministry. We are told in the parallel passage in Luke that the purpose was to pray. He went up into the mountain to pray, as he so often did. And Jesus' prayer was answered by God in an amazing way. And that's what we consider this afternoon, the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus. First of all, that he was transfigured before his disciples. Secondly, he was visited by Moses and Elijah. Thirdly, he was declared God's beloved son. Jesus, Peter, James, and John went up to the top of that mountain and Jesus began to pray. And Peter, James, and John promptly fell fast asleep, according to Luke 9, verse 32. And while Jesus prayed, he was transfigured before them. The word for transfigured means transformed. It refers to an amazing metamorphosis, and that literally is the Greek word metamorphosis, the word we use to refer to a caterpillar when it changes into a butterfly. It's a profound transformation. In our text, we read about this transformation. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Mark puts it like this, his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Luke puts it like this, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering or glistening. What a transformation, a glorious transfiguration took place that day. It was, first of all, a transformation of his face. We're told that his face began to shine as the sun. No longer did his face have the appearance of physicality, of flesh and blood, with the color that we're used to seeing in a face. But his face shined with the brightness of the sun at noonday. And secondly, it was a transformation of his clothing. We're told that his robe that he was wearing was no longer in the form of plain cloth, but it began to shine and to glisten in a pure whiteness, a purity unimaginable, and it shined brightly like the new fallen snow reflecting the sun. What we see before us is Jesus suddenly lit up with brightness and glory, shining magnificently. Now, the significance of this transfiguration was that 
Jesus was receiving a foretaste of the future glory that he would receive after he finished his work on this earth. He was receiving this foretaste to strengthen him, to encourage him, to gladden his heart, as we sang earlier in the Psalter, that he might press on to finish his course, which led him down the dark, dark path that ended at the cross. That was the purpose of this transfiguration. Notice in this event, Jesus was not reflecting light, but he was emitting light. We see that the snow outside today is reflecting the light of the sun. The sun shines on the snow and it bounces off and reflects. Jesus was not reflecting light from anyone else or from anything else, but this light was like the sun, verse 2. His face shined like the sun. That light was coming forth from his face and shining in brilliant brightness, so bright that you could not look him in the face. This glorious light that was streaming forth from Jesus was what he would experience in his exaltation. Later in Revelation 1, John would see a vision of Jesus in his exalted state. In verses 14 through 16, John writes what he saw. He saw one whose head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. God gave to Jesus a glimpse in that mountain of the glories and the majesty that he would give to him at his exaltation after finishing his work and completing his mission. The purpose of God in giving this glorious experience to Jesus at that time was to encourage him. It was to strengthen him. It was to gladden him so that he would press forward from that mountain to the cross and finish the task set before him. Now maybe we wonder, why did Jesus need encouragement? Why did he need to be strengthened? Is not Jesus God? Is he not the Almighty God? Indeed, he is. He is the Almighty God come into human nature, and the almighty power of his Godhead would sustain him even to the cross. But Jesus was also a man. Jesus came into our human nature and took on flesh and blood. And he did not take on a superhuman nature, but a human nature, a weakened human nature, a mortal human nature, just like yours and mine. He was a man like us. And as a man, he experienced suffering, affliction, anguish, sorrow, grief. And as we saw in the introduction at this particular time, as he came closer and closer to the end of his life, he was beginning to show his disciples why he had come to the world. His mind was focused more and more intensely 
on his passion and death on the cross. And that was a heavy burden. The heavy burden that he carried was the burden of our sins. The burden of all of my sins, all of your sins, all of them. And of all of the sins of all of his people throughout all the ages. And the curse that we deserve for those sins. He was bearing that. And he was walking closer and closer to the cross. So now in this moment, God gave him a glorious experience to strengthen him and encourage him to press on, to finish his course, to give his life a ransom in Jerusalem, to save us from our sins and bring glory to God. Now what Jesus received from God in the mount, we receive something similar from God as we live our lives. As we saw in the introduction, Jesus also taught his disciples at this time that anyone who will follow after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He teaches us that we must expect suffering in this world. We must not expect anything else. Now, we will never have to suffer what he suffered on the cross. He bore his cross. We must bear ours. His cross was the curse that we deserve for our sins. We don't have to bear that cross. He bore it for us. But we are to bear our crosses. Whatever burdens God gives to us, whatever trials and afflictions of this present time, he calls us to deny ourselves and to follow him. We might suffer hatred from the world. We might suffer hatred from the church, from our brothers and sisters within the church, which is even more painful. We might suffer the reproach of Christ. We anticipate the future sufferings of persecution in the last days. And we feel the pressure of persecution for Christ's sake, even in the present time. But as we walk through this valley of tears, God gives us a foretaste of the glory that awaits us in heaven. He gives us a small glimpse through the scriptures, through the gospel, and through the spirit in our hearts of what he has in store for us in glory. Now that glimpse that he gives to us is not the same as what he gave to Jesus. He doesn't transfigure us and change the fashion of our countenance and clothing so that we shine and beam forth with glorious light. But he gives us a blessed spiritual transformation. A spiritual transfiguration. And he works it within our hearts and souls so that it comes out through our lives. That is his glorious work of sanctification. When God sanctifies us, he begins to glorify us. The glory that God gives to us is the glory of a holy and godly walk of life. We remember that in the beginning, Adam and Eve were created in God's image, righteous and holy. And in his image, they were reflections of God himself, The glorious God was reflected in them 
in their righteousness and holiness. We lost all of that when we fell into sin. But now in Christ Jesus and through his Spirit, he creates us again in his image so that little by little and more and more we reflect the holiness of God in a holy life. And that's a blessed experience for us. It's the blessedness of overcoming sin, the blessedness of more and more reflecting the holiness of God. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, just as we're doing today in the Scriptures, We're looking into the scriptures. That's like a mirror, a glass. And there in the scriptures we behold the glory of Christ. And Paul says, as we behold the glory of Christ, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The glory that God gives us now in a foretaste and what he will give us in heaven in fullness is not our own glory. We know very well that we deserve no glory. All glory goes to God alone and to Christ. But the glory that God gives to us is his glory. When we live a godly life, we do not receive the glory for that, but we are reflecting the glory of God working in us. God works in us so that we live a new and godly life. And every good work that we do is the fruit of his work in us and gives him the glory. And the amazing thing is, through that, he gives us a glimpse of what we will have in heaven. I love Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Notice, the glory which shall be revealed in us. God's glory, not ours. Revealed in us. Already now, God gives us a taste to encourage us so that we will press on in living that Christian life until he gives us a crown of glory in heaven. While Jesus was standing there in all of his majesty and glory, behold, we read, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Moses and Elijah. God sent Moses and Elijah to that mountain that day to talk with Jesus. God sent them from heaven to the earth in their glorified state to talk to Jesus. In the parallel passage in Luke, we read this, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The scriptures seem to teach us that there were three men in the Old Testament who went into glory in their bodies. Enoch, Moses, and Elijah. 
We recall that Enoch and Elijah were the only two men in the Bible times who did not die. Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and he went to heaven. Elijah was carried up into heaven in a glorious chariot of fire. Neither of them died. Moses did die in Mount Nebo before the Israelites entered the land of Canaan. But there is a very fascinating passage in the book of Jude which teaches us that the archangel Michael fought with Satan over the body of Moses. Why were they fighting over the body of Moses? It seems that Michael was transporting Moses in his body into heaven, and Satan was trying to frustrate him. So the scriptures seem to say that God took three men into heaven in their bodies in the Old Testament, those three men. Now God sends two of them back to the earth in their glorified state, Moses and Elijah. Why these two men? Because Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. And the law and the prophets were two of the great divisions of the Old Testament scriptures. They represented the Old Testament scriptures in their fullness. And why did God send them to the mountain to talk to Jesus? Matthew and Mark don't tell us what they talked about, but Luke does. Luke says they talked to Jesus about his decease, which he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Remember, at this time, Jesus was focusing more and more intently on what he would do in Jerusalem. How he would give himself to die on the cross. Now God sends two men to him who represent the whole of the Old Testament scriptures to talk to him about that. About what he is going to do in Jerusalem. His decease. When we look at the Greek word for decease in Luke, the word is literally exodus. They came to talk to Jesus about his exodus. Now, as soon as you hear that word exodus, you think of the book of the Bible, the second book, Exodus. And you think about the wonder work that God did through Moses when, through the shedding of the blood of the Passover lambs and striking it on their doorposts, the children of Israel were delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And through Moses, they were brought through the midst of the, dry sea, uh, the Red Sea on dry ground. Moses and the Exodus are always together in our minds. But Moses was only a type pointing forward to Christ. And all of those lambs whose blood they shed were types pointing forward to Christ. Christ, who was to come, would bring the true Exodus The exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt was only a picture as glorious as it was. We think of that Red Sea with the walls of water and what a wonder that was. But that was only a small thing in comparison to the reality. Christ is the true Moses and the true Lamb of God who has come to bring exodus But we are told that Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus about 
his exodus, his own exodus. They were talking to him about the fact that through death he would find his own exodus from death, from hell, and from this world. An exodus that would carry him out of this world into the highest heaven, the heavenly Canaan, the eternal promised land. And that through his exodus, he would open up for us also an exit from this world, this fallen, cursed world. He would open up for us an exit from the grave and from death and hell, an entryway into the glories of heaven. They talked to him about that, his exodus in Jerusalem. Moses, no doubt, talked to him about that from the point of view of the law. The first five books of the Bible are sometimes called the law. Moses wrote those first five books. Moses spoke to Jesus about his need to fulfill the law, that he is the end of the law for righteousness, that he must obey the law perfectly to the very end, and that he must suffer the curse of that law for all of his people. Elijah spoke to Jesus about his exodus from the point of view of the prophets, representing all of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the others, Elijah spoke to Jesus about the need to fulfill those prophecies. We just think of one. That Messiah, when he comes, would be stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That he would give his back to the smiters. That he would give his face to those who would spit upon him. That he would bear our iniquities and that through his stripes we would be healed. Moses and Elijah spoke to him to encourage him. The purpose of God in the transfiguration of Jesus was the same as his purpose in sending Moses and Elijah. They weren't speaking to Jesus in a way that was intended to dampen his spirits, to fill him with horror and dread of the cross, but just the opposite. They spoke of his exodus. Through the cross, you will find an exodus. Through the cross, you will find a way through, a way out, a way into the glories of heaven, Jesus. Go forth. Go to the cross. Finish your mission. Establish your kingdom. You will rise again, and you will be exalted to the highest heights of heaven. That's what they said to him. They talked about his decease in Jerusalem. That was an encouragement. As Moses and Elijah finished their message to Jesus, they began to depart from him. And that, we are told, is when Peter, James, and John woke up. Luke 9, verses 32 through 33, teaches that They awoke from their sleep, and they saw Jesus in that glorious state, and Moses and Elijah about to depart from him. And that is when Peter spoke up right away. But we're told Peter didn't know what to say, so he just blurted out the first thing that came into his mind. And he said, 
Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. How did Peter know that these two men were Moses and Elijah? We don't know the answer to that. Somehow he knew. But Peter reveals by his comment a lack of spiritual understanding. He reveals a sinful and carnal nature, the same one that cleaves to us. He has no idea what is going on before him, before his eyes. He is still in his heart set upon the hope that Jesus is what the others thought he would be, a king on this earth. That Jesus was going to establish a glorious Jewish kingdom. And that Peter himself would have a high-ranking position in that kingdom. They argued later on about who would be the greatest in that kingdom. These were the, ho- the hopes and dreams that Peter harbored in his heart. And he reveals that here. When he says, Lord, this is a good thing. This is really good. There's Moses and there's Elijah and you. And you're going to be the king. And Moses and Elijah are here. And who better than Moses and Elijah to help you become king in Jerusalem? Let's set up three tabernacles, three tents, one for each of you. And maybe this can be a sort of a base camp. And here we can begin our plans for the carrying out of the glorious ascent into Jerusalem in which you will become king and reign over the world. Something like that is what was going through Peter's mind. What Peter reveals is the same nature that is in us. We are no better than Peter. We're just like him. When we, if we were there and we saw Moses and Elijah, we would have the same hopes and dreams. A peaceful kingdom on this earth. A happy life. Long life. Health and strength. Earthly treasures and earthly glory and earthly greatness. Not that deep, dark, miserable way of the cross. But an earthly kingdom. Earthly power. Earthly joy. That's what Peter desired. Is not that the desire of our hearts? May God forgive us. But on the other hand, what God gave to Jesus, he also gives to us something very similar and shows by that his grace and mercy toward us weak sinners. He gave Jesus Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, the holy scriptures to encourage him to press on. And God has given to us Moses, Elijah, but also Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all the epistles of Paul, and Peter, and John, and all the other scriptures. And in those scriptures, he points out to us his grace and his mercy toward us, that he has sent his Son 
so that through the death of the cross he might make a way of escape, an exodus, and an entrance into glory. Just as Elijah and Moses encouraged Jesus to press on, the scriptures encourage us. Press on, child of God. Press on. Bear your cross. Deny yourself. Follow Jesus. Be patient in all of your troubles and afflictions. God has a crown of glory for you in heaven. Read the scriptures. Do not neglect the reading of the word of God in your daily life. In the morning, in the nighttime, in family devotions, in the church on Sundays. Be diligent in the reading of the scriptures. God has given them to us as a precious treasure to encourage us in our daily walk. Finally, as Peter was yet speaking, the words were still coming out of his mouth. We're told, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Although they were probably at the top of Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in Palestine, we're not to understand that this cloud that came was like the clouds high up in the sky, or that this cloud was high up in the sky above their heads. This was a very special cloud. We're told that they entered into the cloud, or to put it differently, the cloud surrounded them and engulfed them. But this cloud did not create darkness. It was a bright cloud. There was a brightness in that cloud. And although it did overshadow them so that it blocked out the rays of the sun, nevertheless, there was a brightness in that cloud. It was a figure of the presence of God himself. Throughout scripture, the cloud is often a picture of the presence of God. In the wilderness, there was this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night that guided the children of Israel through the wilderness. And that pillar of cloud was God himself. When Solomon built his temple, that cloud filled the most holy place of the temple. It was called the Shekinah in the Hebrew language. The cloud. God. With his people. Now that cloud comes again and engulfs Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and those three disciples. God himself had come to the mount and surrounded them with his presence. It was God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who came. We know that from what the voice said. There was a voice that spoke out of that cloud. The sound did not come from the heavens above, or the earth beneath, or anywhere else around them, it came out of the cloud. And that voice said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. God himself was proclaiming to the disciples and to us, Jesus is my Son. Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten Son, 
There is no other eternal and natural Son of God, Jesus alone. This is my Son, my beloved Son. This Jesus I love, God said. I love him. I love him with an eternal and everlasting love. Even though Jesus was about to go to the cross and be forsaken by God in the darkness and misery of the cross, here on the Mount of Transfiguration, God says, I love you, my son. I love you. I will always love you. And God proclaimed in the third place, I am well pleased with him. God wanted the disciples and us to know he was not displeased with Jesus, even though he's about to suffer the worst agony imaginable. I am not displeased with him. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm not disappointed in him. I'm not angry with him. I am well pleased with him. My beloved, faithful, eternally obedient son. Hear ye him. That's the last thing God said. Having proclaimed who Jesus is, he calls us to hear him. Hear him. If you refuse to hear the gospel that Jesus preaches to you, you will perish. He is the Son of God, and there is no other. He's the only Savior. Hear ye him. And hearing his voice, believe in him. Come to him. Embrace him as your Savior, and thou shalt be saved. This was the voice that came out of the cloud. And that was an encouragement to Jesus. An unimaginably great encouragement as he more and more set his eyes on Jerusalem. Here, God says to him, I love you. I am well pleased in you. Press on. Notice two points of significance in conclusion. First of all, what a significant moment for those three disciples. They became eyewitnesses of the majesty and glory of Christ. We're told that, verse 6, when the disciples heard that voice, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Imagine the three of them with their faces flat on the ground in terror. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, the cloud was gone. Moses and Elijah were gone. They saw no one and nothing except Jesus standing there. Only Jesus. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. When Jesus calls it a vision here, he doesn't mean to say that it didn't really happen or that it was just an appearance. That word for vision in the text can be translated a sight. So we could put it this way. Tell what you have seen to no man until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. They had seen something. 
with their own eyes. And what they had seen was the glory of Jesus. And what they had heard was the voice of God himself declaring to them who Jesus is and what he came to do. Peter speaks of this later. At this time, the disciples did not understand. When Jesus said, don't say anything until after my resurrection, we're told in one of the other Gospels, they started to question among themselves what the rising from the dead might mean. They had no idea. But after the resurrection, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, Peter would later write this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. As eyewitnesses and ear witnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and the apostles wrote down the New Testament scriptures. We may trust these scriptures. They are inspired by God and given to us by eyewitnesses. Peter would go on to say in verse 19, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Peter says, we received something glorious in the Holy Mount. We saw Jesus in his splendor and majesty, and we heard the voice of God telling us, this is my beloved son, but you have something even more sure than that. You have something better than that. You have the Holy Scriptures, and that's a more sure word of prophecy, and you do well to take heed to it until the great day comes when the day star arises in your heart. In the second place, the significance is this. The words that God spoke about Jesus, he also speaks about us. And he speaks those words to us in the preaching of the gospel. He says to us, you are my beloved sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased. Do not be afraid of any of your trials, afflictions, or troubles. Do not be afraid of death. Do not be afraid of hell. You are my beloved sons and daughters. My beloved son I gave for you. He died for you. 
to open up a way for you into heaven. You are precious to me, beloved to me, so precious. I am well pleased with you, not because you have done something to earn my pleasure, not because it's your works or your doing, but I am well pleased in you because of Christ. I'm well pleased with you. I'm not disappointed. I'm not displeased. I'm not full of wrath toward you. I'm well pleased for Christ's sake. So go forth in that joyful confidence and serve God in gratitude. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the word of the gospel. We thank Thee for the mirror of the scriptures that has shown to us the glory of the Lord. And also, we pray that Thou would use that preaching to change us from glory to glory until at last we find our own exodus from this world into heavenly glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In his